Hey, everybody. It's good to be with you. Uh, it's, yeah, tonight it's good to be outside again. I'm thankful for warm weather that we can uh, be outside again um, after meeting indoors last week. Uh, so yeah, it's, I'm glad to be here. Uh, welcome to RUF if this is your first time or if you're still exploring. Uh, RUF Reformed University Fellowship is what it stands for. We're, uh, like Jess has said and others have said, I've probably gotten the vibe. We're a Christian group um, on campus trying to honestly muddle through college in 2020 and all that that is. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you're here tonight. I feel like it's been a pretty tumultuous or exhausting week for me and I know that it's been that way for a lot of you because of I've talked with you, but I've also seen social media, and I, I just know that it's been hard. Um, so I hope that um, tonight feels restful mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. Um, we sing, but then we also look at the Bible, and we look at, a, we, look at, we look at the Bible because we believe that the Bible is God's personal word for us. Um, and it, if it's really God's word, like if this is the creator God of the universe who's speaking to us for us, um, then we should pay attention, we should believe, we should obey. Um, so I, I think it's the only authority in our lives, in the midst of a lot of things in our world that are competing for authority. Uh, our grades, our professors, certainly politicians, uh, this week at least, our family, our friends. Um, if the Bible is really is what it claims, that is God's personal words to us, um, I think it's valuable to take some time to look at that. And so in the middle of a hard week, let's look at what the Bible has to say. Um, as Christians, we have a chance to turn to it and turn away from pundits and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and everything else that's brought us, at least brought me to my knees in the last few weeks. Um, so we're going to look at tonight at arguably, I think, one of the most encouraging and amazing pieces in the entire Bible. Um, and I hope it's as good to you as it has been to me. As we look at this tonight, um, if you have questions, if you want to interact with this more, shoot me a text. My phone number is on that piece of paper that you have, or uh, many of you have my phone number. We are, uh, we'll, we'll just, and afterwards we'll have a short uh, just dialogue as I try to answer those questions on the fly. Um, tonight we're going to see how God's love gives us victory over opposition. It's pretty simple. God's love gives us victory over opposition. We're going to look at two ways that that's true and the application. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, read this piece of text. We're actually looking at two pieces of, of uh, the book of Romans tonight, and then uh, uh, we will go from there. So <clears throat> let me start with the first piece, which is Romans 8. It says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall condemn? Shall Christ, the one who died, more than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we, belong, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then I'm going to skip ahead a few verses, a few chapters to chapter 13, where Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Will you have no fear over the one who, who is in authority? Then do good that you will receive his approval, for when God's, for he is God's servant for your good. And if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We pray for us. Father in heaven, uh, thank you that we can be here tonight. Thank you that we can sit outside and that it's cool and it's not uh, hot or cold, that the wind is not blowing our paper and our screens around, that um, we can gather even at a distance and hear your word and sing in fellowship. We pray that as we study your word tonight that your spirit would comfort us, illumine the good news of Christ to us in ways that change us into better um, versions of ourselves, which is us like Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so big thing I want us to see over, to, over all of this tonight as we look at this piece of the Bible is that God gives, uh, God's love gives us victory over opposition. And three things that we want to look at. First is uh, when God is for us. Second, the inseparable love of God in Christ. And third, I want to look at how that applies to politics because I know we've all been thinking about politics. At least I'm pretty sure you've been thinking about politics. Um, so how, uh, when God is for us, the inseparable love of God in Christ and how that applies to politics. So first point, when God is for us, look at verse 31 that we just read in chapter eight. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, some of you are probably wondering at the very first, what does he mean when he says, what shall we say about these things? What is he talking about here? What are the things that he refers to? And from the context, if you were to look up just a few chapters, if you have a real Bible or if you're, uh, you know, just um, scrolling on your phone, you can see that he's been talking about what God has been doing in the life of the Christian over their whole life, uh, from his first movements in our hearts and lives to the very end of time when he will save us ultimately from everything that would, would, would be against us. And so he's referring to the amazing graces or the powers of God, the goodness of God to save us from the power of sin. Uh, and so that would include justification, which is a theological topic that we've talked a lot about the last few weeks, which is God's radical declaration that the legal penalty and punishment of sin no longer has any power over us. That sin is no longer the penalty that we suffer. Or he could be talking about adoption, which is God's loving welcome of us into the life and family of himself and of, of, of other Christians and all of the tenderness that comes from adoption. He's talking about here sanctification, which is the, which is the Holy Spirit's amazing process of transforming you and me into from people who are like selfish consumers and narcissists into people who are generous and self-sacrificial humans. So those are the things that Paul has in mind. He says, what should we say about these things? If God is for us, which he has proven in all of these amazing doctrines, what should we, what, what should we do about it? If God is for us, who can be against us? And, and he's asking a question there, right? But if you're an intuitive reader, you can see that he's not actually not, un, he doesn't know the answer. It's a rhetorical question, right? 
he's asking a question, but, the, but it's, it's rhetorically, it's a statement that if God is for us, nothing can possibly be against us. If God is for us, and he says, and, and I, want to, I want us to focus on that, that idea of God, if God is for us, and the, beauty, the beautiful truth and sweetness of those words, God for us. Think about this for a minute. A great theologian uh, who lived 80 years ago, he calls this the great fortress of Christian hope, the idea of God for us. The unassailable, the, the, the impregnable truth of Christian faith that God becomes for us. And he tells us in verse 32 how that happens. How does God become one who is disposed and tender and warm, who's for us? And he tells us. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So he says that in verse 22, he reminds us that God is not just some sort of benevolent grandfather like you know Santa Claus God who's just like whatever you want I'm going to just throw it at you can have it no he says no God becoming for us was an incredibly costly and painful process for God himself he says for God to be for us was nothing less than him sacrificing him not sparing his own son That Jesus Christ comes to earth and walks as a man in the brokenness and the depravity of the world that you and I live in, that he suffers all of that, but then that he goes and dies outside of a town for for the brokenness and the sin of the entire world, all of us. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Why did he have to give him up? Well, because of our sin. Because of our sin, we've seen throughout the book of Romans, we've seen throughout this that behind this phrase, he gave him up for us all, is the entire story of our deep rebellion and rejection and hostility towards God, apart from God doing something radical and transformative. That, 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 that he gave him up for us all, behind that says that apart from God doing something that we would only and exclusively deserve God's wrath and his eternal punishment. But what does the gospel say? He says that Jesus was not spared, but that he gave, the Father gave up his own Son to die on the cross in your and in my place. So Paul says, he says, look, what more can God do to prove that he is for us. What more can he possibly, I know people ask like, I need God to prove that he loves me. And, and Paul says, he, what more can he do? He, his own son died to prove that he is for us. He's done everything to show how much he is for us. And he says, if he's gracious enough to save us from our own sin, he says he will graciously give us all things. All things here, I think, refers literally to almost all things, spiritual blessings. Now, there's a timeline on that where you can't just be like, well, why don't I have a million dollars? That's not how it works. And you can send in a text and we can talk about that. But I truly believe that when it talks about all things, it means that when God finally reveals himself and reveals all of us and brings us to heaven, all things that we could possibly want will be ours. And that, that's the sweetness of it. So the, verse 34, he says, where is it? He says, oh, I lost my page. There it is. Um, he says, who shall bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
who shall condemn Jesus Christ? Maybe he is. But no, he's the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He's saying the only person who could possibly come and condemn us, who has the only right to condemn you or I for our sin, is the one who saves us from our sin. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is now not the one who judges us, but the one who intercedes for us, the one who stands before the judgment throne of God and says, you cannot punish this Christian because I have taken their punishment on myself. He says that the, the people whom God loves, the elect, that no one and no thing can accuse them. He says that Christ himself rules to protect and, and, and puts us in this amazing position of power and dignity because of what Christ has done. And this is the amazing transformation of the gospel as the news of God for us. Like, think about what Christianity is. Christianity is this coming in and telling us, hey, God is against you. Apart from you trusting in Christ, God is against you because of your sin. But because of Christ and because of what Christ has done for you, trusting in that God becomes for you. And all of God's riches and sweetness and tenderness and love and delight is lavished on you because of what Christ has done. That's the amazing switch that happens in Christianity, that God goes from against us to for us, not based on what we do, but based on what Christ does for us. Think of it this way. Uh, I, was, I watched uh, Infinity War, uh, the Marvel movie, the other day, and I was watching the very end battle. Remember at the very end battle where the, the Marvel superheroes are they're fighting against the the, the bad, uh, all the armies of Thanos. And it's not going great. And they're all, you know, Captain America's getting swarmed by um, the monsters and, and, and Black Panther's getting swarmed. And all of a sudden, just like, boom, this lightning bolt pounds down and destroys the earth. And Thor slams down. And he's like, his eyes are, are glowing with electricity and he's just pulsing with power. And Hulkbuster with uh, Bruce Banner and him throws back his helmet and says, ha ha, you guys are so screwed now. That's what I thought about when I was thinking about God for us, that when God becomes for us, everything that would oppose us, we can look at dead in the eye and say, oh, you guys are so screwed now because God is for us and he has dropped down into our lives, into our world to save us from everything that opposes us. That's what Paul does later on in 1 Corinthians. Paul taunts the only thing that he would think could possibly hurt us, which is death itself. He looks death dead in the eye and says, Death, because of Christ, where is your victory? Where is your sting? So what, what, what Paul is saying here is despite everything that you personally do and everything that humanity does that offends and displeases and unloves and distances us from God, God still comes close and moves close to be for us in the work of Christ. That's incredible. That's such sweet, sweet news for us that God is for us, that against all odds, against even our own sin, God is for us. Those are amazing words when you let those sink into your life and your heart. And it flows into the next point here, which Paul tells us in verse 35, which is this, the inseparable love of God in Christ. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If God is for us, if God is for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asks questions about maybe things. He says, shall tribulation, shall distress, shall distress, 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Could these things, these real wicked, terrible things possibly separate us from the love of Christ? And it's amazing because Paul, later on, he describes in, in 1 Corinthians, he describes all the things that he's undergone and suffered as a Christian. And all of these things he lists, except the sword. He says, I've had all these things happen to me, except the sword. But then we know from later on in his life that Paul is even killed for being a Christian. He says, shall all these things that I've endured separate me, separate the Christian from the love of Christ? And then he quotes, verse, in verse 36, he's, he quotes an old psalm from the Hebrew Bible, and he says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. And what's he saying here? He's saying following the living God is really hard. <laughs> and it's, it, follow, being a Christian is not easy. For those of you who are looking at being Christians or curious about Christian faith, let me tell you, being a Christian is hard, hard work. He, what does he say? He says, following God, he says, for your sake or for God's sake, we are killed. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Christians, he said, we should expect agony, pain, and even death for our faith. The church around the world knows that better than we do. I just read a story today. It was posted on November 5th about uh, a Christian in Ethiopia. This happened, I'm telling you, this week of a Christian who became a Christian in uh, Ethiopia and his t he, he converted to Christianity from Islam. His name was Kofi. And when his village found out that he became a Christian, they literally beat him so badly that his arm had to be amputated. And um, so they had this picture of him and he has this bandage around his arm and there's just a stump where there was an arm and he says this, he says, I'm happy to give my hand for Jesus, but I am ready all the more to give my life for the faith of Jesus Christ. Christians around the world are killed, abused, assaulted, all the more for their faith in Christ. And it's not like upper middle class white people like me. More often than not, they're the brown and the black and the poor, the ex-Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and communists. That's the kind of persecution. And, and, and Paul says, man, when that's happening to Christians, what do we do? And then, then if that's the worst, what do we do with all the other things that you and I suffer for being Christians? Like our friends who are like, why do they, why do they go to this weird Christian thing and sit in six-foot squares with masks on every Thursday night? That's strange. Everything in between, he says, that, he says, will that separate us from the love of Christ? And, and, and that struck a nerve, I'm sure, with the re readers of this book in Romans because the Roman Christians were routinely persecuted for being, for being Christians. And we're, we'll talk about that in just a second. But the Roman Empire, it harassed, it kicks, it, there was one point where it kicks all the Christians out of Rome and then it starts killing all the Christians and torturing all the Christians, assaulting them. Verse 36 is real for a lot of Christians in the world. And he says, well, this, this and everything else that you and I suffer will separate us from the love of Christ. The depression, the anxiety, the family strife, the divorces, the substance abuse, all the things that you and I suffer. Will this separate us from the love of Christ? 
Paul in verse 37, he gives a resounding answer, no, in all of these things. He says, in all the things that persecute and afflict and harm and ultimately even kill us as Christians, he says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. He says, in all of these things, these things that would even destroy us, in those things we are, the word he uses, he, he makes up a word. He says that we are hyper-victors. We are the victors on steroids. We are the hyper-conquerors. Through him, that is, through Christ who loved us. He says that even the things that would seek to rip us apart from Christ's love to the thing that we could point to and say, how can God possibly love me because this is happening in my life? He says this very thing is the thing that makes us more than conquerors because of his love for us. That we are hyper-victors even in the pain that we endure as Christians. He says in verse 38, for I am sure, he says, I am so confident, I am convinced, I have total confidence. I have total confidence that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will what? Be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He gives us this laundry list of things and he says, neither death nor life. I mean, what's the final thing that could possibly say that God doesn't love us? Dying, he says, no, not, that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Death itself, he tells us in Philippians, is only our entrance into the final love of God in heaven. Angels are rulers. Here he's talking about the spiritual world. We all know that we live in a deep, deeply spiritual world a world that is full of evil forces and good forces that war for our bodies and our souls. He says that even that in all of Satan's armies cannot separate us from God's love. Things present nor things to come. He says possible realities, future events cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Powers, here he's talking about human forces, government, politics cannot separate us from the love of God. Not COVID, not a Trump president, not a Biden president. None of those things can separate us from the love of God. And then what does he say? He just caps it off. He says, nothing in creation, nothing in creation, not even you yourself can separate you from the love of God and Christ. There's so much hope. There's so much thankfulness in these verses. These need to be the banner verses for your 2020. When you are, I, I'm telling you, you could, I mean, if there is a piece of scripture to memorize, it is Romans 8, 31 through 39. If there is a piece of scripture to read every single day, it is Romans 8, 31 through 39. Our calling as Christians is to internalize and self-actualize these verses into our life and into our spirituality. So here's the question. What is the thing that you feel might separate you as a Christian from the love of God? Is it your own sin? Is it that thing you did last week or last year? Is it your singleness? Is it the politics and the political mess of 2020? Is it your depression and your anxiety and how they induce you and force you into isolation? Is it your destructive habits like cutting or drinking or using porn or overworking? Is it the drama in your family or your parents? Is it COVID? Is it poverty? Is it the awfulness of online classes? 
the death of family and friends, all of these things, they feel like they're too great. They feel like they're forces that are too big for God. They feel like they're ways that we say, how can God possibly love a creation when these things are happening to his children? Here, the Bible, which is God's personal word to us and for us, reminds us that none of those things can separate us from God's love. Because it's God's words, it has the authority and says, trust this. Don't trust all the other things. Trust this. If this is God's word, this is the hinge point. This is the focal point of which you trust and say, all of those other things be damned. I will trust this. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. All right, so if this is true, let's try and figure out how it applies. Third point to politics. How does this apply to politics? Because I know that we're thinking about politics a lot. And I read the first five verses of chapter 13. Uh, you know, I know that everyone here is thinking about election results. We're all checking our phones religiously and figuring, trying to figure out why in the world Nevada can't seem to have any counters in their country or in their state. At least I know I am. So how does this idea of God, God's inseparable love intersect with politics? And I think it's really important to get a little of the context. I just read what Paul says here. I'll just reread verses 1 through 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those who have ex that, that exist have been instituted by God. Here's what Paul's writing to when he writes this. Paul is writing to this letter to the Roman church, the church, the group of Christians who live in what was, you know, now, now the city of Rome, then the capital of the Roman Empire. And the, this is happening around 60 AD, so about 60 years after Christ. And the, the emperor who's in charge of uh, the Roman Empire, who's in Rome, was no fan of Christians. And he was known to regularly... Um, oppose and even persecute Christians and to do some really unspeakable things to them. Uh, if he just got mad at Christians, he would just find Christians and then use, like literally use them as torches. He would just light them on fire and, and illumine his house parties with Christians. It, I mean, he would, you know, it, it's well known, it's documented that he would throw them into coliseums with animals and people would laugh at them as they got eaten. I mean, the things he did were unspeakable. Uh, and Christians back then were generally in the lower socioeconomic classes, like people like slaves and women and children, people who had no social standing. Those were the people who became Christians. And so Nero would mock and torture and kill Christians, and the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Christians were just generally loathed. No one liked them. And so you think it's not easy being a Christian, and the government, you hate the government. You're like, man, I hate this Nero guy. I hate the governing authority. How, what am I supposed to do now that I'm a Christian with this politics? And what does Paul tell the Christians? He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And their alarm bells would have gone off, and they said, What? God put Nero in charge, and now I'm supposed to submit to him? How in the world does that make any sense? Submitting or being subject means... It means that we follow their rules. Paul's, he says, and he says the reason we're supposed to follow their rules is because God put them in place. 
What does this mean? He says that if you and I are Christians, he says we're, we're called to obey our political leaders unless they tell us to do something that is explicitly against God's word. We have to obey them, which is really challenging given our current political moment. And we look at the people who are on the ballots and we think, woof, this is tough. And Paul would look us dead in the eye and say, A, it's not nearly as bad as what the Christians in Rome are doing, and B, you're called to obey them. Even if you disagree with them, even if you disrespect them, you are called to submit and subject yourself to them. He says, I don't care who's in office. I don't care how bad they are. Biden or Trump in the White House and any other lower governing authority, you are called to submit to them. We can disagree with them, but we still obey them, he says. He says in verse 4 that government is God's tool to make a better world, which is so fascinating and so hard for us to believe. But if he could say that about the Roman government, how much more true is it of, of us today in somewhat of a liberal democracy? It's amazing. Remember, Paul is writing, that he's, he's writing about Nero who would literally eventually kill him. And if that's true, how much more true is it of our local, state, and national elections? So how, how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to submit to a government that not only may not protect us, but might even harm us? And in the experience of a lot of Christians around the world, when government actually has a pretty good program and intention of killing Christians. And I think this is where Romans 8 comes back in. That, and and this is, it's this, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And if that's true, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then even bad government, even wicked governing authorities cannot separate us from Christ's love, which means that we can freely submit to them, obey them, yet with the hope and the expectation that the pain and the wickedness of that is temporary and that Christ's love and the joys from that are eternal. That though government may conquer us, we are still more than conquerors through Christ. All power, all authority, all government has come from God, and yet he will long surpass, and we through him will long surpass all government. Though government may conquer us, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So while we wait for our government to be decided, we know that we are called to submit to them, whether it's Trump, whether it's Biden, whether it's whatever happens. And that we, no matter what happens, we have the hope of glory, the joy of God's inseparable love and the peace of heaven waiting for us, and that nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from that. What does this text show us? It shows us first that God is for us, that he goes from being against us to for us through the work of Christ. Second, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And third, that as we wait for politics to work itself out, and none of us are happy with the results, that we submit knowing that God's love will triumph in the end. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, shape our hearts through this, each one of us. We're coming from a big array of places and positions towards you and towards the Christian faith tonight. And um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in and through each of us as we uniquely need um, to see your great love for us in Christ and that we would be people who are shaped and warmed by it to love you and love others. And as we lean into the political process to respect our government, knowing that you are in charge and you do love us unchangeably. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Okay, got a couple texts here. Um, with Romans 13, how do we seek just? How do we still seek justice? Does the Bible care about the oppressed? Why would God put people who are in power? Uh, why would God put people in power who are evil? Oh my gosh, there's like four questions there. Um, how do we still seek justice? As Christians right now, I mean, I think primarily Paul, I mean, I think Christ, the example of Christ would say, love those who, I mean, seek the justice of those who are closest to you. Um, there's often, there's not a lot sometimes we can do immediately for like on a national level. I mean, we're, I think we're called to vote, but I think we can pursue the justice of those who are in, I mean, New Mexico desperately needs justice. And so I think even in a pandemic, I mean, if that's something you're passionate about, there are outlets and avenues for you to seek the justice within the things that are closer in your sphere. Um, which then asks the question, does the Bible care about the oppressed? Um, unequivocally, yes. The Bible is passionate about its care for the oppressed. Um, look no further than the minor prophets. They are full of saying that God's heart beats for those who are abused and hurt by humans and by sin. And that, I mean, most of the God's project to save the world is to save it from, I mean, one way of thinking about sin is the oppression of sin, that sin is an evil force that invades our world and oppresses creation. And that, that, and, and that God is passionate about liberating people from oppression. The dominant theme in the Old Testament of redemption is God freeing his people from the slavery of Egypt, the oppression of Egypt, and bringing them into the freedom of the promised land. Um, so yes, if you want texts on that, shoot me a text and I'm happy to help you see where the Bible cares about the oppressed. Um, let's see here. How do we know when to seek justice and protest the governing authorities and when to submit to them? Man, that's a great question. Um, so the, the, the easy answer is uh, when, when the government calls us as Christians to do something that is explicitly contrary to Scripture, then we have to say, remember what Scripture is, it's God's personal words to us, which means that it is the authority. It, I mean, if it truly is God's word, then it is not a authority, but the authority. So that when the government says something that contradicts with that authority, we have to say, uh, we care for you, we respect you as, as, as governing authorities, but the authority in our lives as Christians is the Bible. We have to disagree with you. Um, and so, you know, and then suffer the consequences from that. Um, so how do we know when to protest? I don't know if there's an easy answer, honestly. Um, I don't know if there's a, it, it would depend on, a, on, a, on the individual case by case. Um, you need to shoot me a text on something in particular. Um, but I think it really, yeah, it just depends on, on, on illustrations on, because, of, yeah. So shoot me a text on that one and we can dialogue with it. Um, you said that we're supposed to submit to our laws and authorities unless they uh, commit a sin. What does that mean? What kind of sin? That sounded broad to me. Yeah. So honestly, this is like an entire series. Like we could do a whole large group series on politics and I'm more than willing to do that, but I think none of you would come. Um, so um, I actually really care about this topic, uh, and I can't in like at five minutes possibly answer that question. I, I'll try to say, I tried to say it earlier. What does it mean? What kind of sin? Sounds broad to you. Yeah, it is broad. Sorry, that's all I can do. Text me one. We'll talk about it. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>
Creatures here below, praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thanks for coming tonight, y'all. Have a great evening. See ya. It's, it's got to be higher than that. <laughs> Have a great night. <laughs> On that note. find maybe I'm just a little So bad. Hey, Zach. Para ti. I meant to give you that a while ago, but I forgot. So it's a little book that I think will be good for you. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> This is for you. I meant to give that to you a while ago, but I forgot. Yeah. What's up, gamers? Hi. Yeah. Boom. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah. Thank up, man? you. Well, I don't know how to greet anyone anymore. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> Tyler Harris. It's Tell me your name. Tyler Harris. Tyler, it's good to meet you, man. Pleasure Where are you from? Here, born and raised, actually. Oh, really? Yes, sir. Sweet. Where'd you go to high school? Cruces High. Oh, nice. Yeah. Do you know... Well, I don't know where John went. That guy with the backwards hat. What you did? He's John. It's John. His name's John Brown. I don't know. What year are you here? Oh, I know JB. I ran yeah. track with him. Did you? Yeah. I figured, yeah. I figured you probably knew him. So, sweet. Are you a student? Uh, yeah, I go to classes in the spring and then I guide hunts in the fall. Oh, sweet. Up in like up in northern New Mexico? or? Yeah, I guide all over the state. Oh, sweet. Not Most... that north, though. Not all the way back where I'm from. Not Chalma North. Uh, I was looking up where Chalma was. I was looking up where Chalma is and I was like, this is in the middle of BF <laughs> nowhere, sir. Like two people from Chalma, though. Which I think is Oh, wait, I forgot to turn this off.